So last uh, spring, after Easter, we, uh, when we kicked off our sermon series in, in the book of 1 Peter, I mentioned a fictional book called The Lost Letters of Pergamon by New Testament scholar and author Bruce Longnecker. Because, and I brought that up because how this book sheds light on the types of grief and trials these new converts to Christ who were living in Asia Minor, which is western Turkey, what they would have faced as they navigated their life of faith in a Greco-Roman culture. Now, this is a fictional story. It's fiction, but it gives us a glimpse into the difficulties they would have had conducting commerce, providing for their families, as, as well as navigating a, a life of faith in Jesus as Lord in this polytheistic religious environment. And I shared that to, to, at that time that to most in that culture, anyone who worshipped one God was certainly viewed as strange, they were even called atheists. Now, the greater threat to the, to the new believers was, the, was their lack of participation in the imperial cult, which we've been talking about, which is the, imp, the worship of the Roman emperor, which failure to do that could be considered high treason. So a little bit more about this fictional book. The book is based around the story of the martyrdom of a man named Antipas in Pergamon. Yes, the, the very one you just heard referenced in the passage. Again, fictional account. We don't know anything about who the real Antipas was or what happened to him, but, but clearly in the passage, Jesus does. And so do the readers of John's letter who were char part of the church in Pergamon. So let's talk about Pergamon. Pergamon is the northernmost of the seven churches in, in Revelation. The historian Pliny the Elder called it the most famous city in all of Asia at that time. And, and now Pergamon was not a port city like Ephesus, but it was a very important judicial and medical and banking and finance center. It also had a library that had over 200,000 volumes. By the time Revelation was written, Ephesus had actually surpassed Pergamon in terms of population and also its significance to Rome, largely because Ephesus, Ephesus was a port city on the Aegean Sea. But Pergamon partly sat on a 1,000-foot conical-shaped hill that you could see uh, and you can see its impressive structures from miles away as you approached it. Now today, the city of Bergama in Turkey just sits a few, few miles southwest of that same hill. Now there are more standing ruins in Pergamon than there are in Ephesus. Here's a picture of what remains of, of uh, a 10,000-seat theater uh, built on the side of that hill I was referencing. Uh, there are also ruins of several pagan temples that remain I want to name just a few of these this morning, but, but here, here's a still shot of an animated video of the Acropolis of Pergamon. Now, this video is amazing. Uh, I actually linked this thing in the Bible app for you, for you to view later. Now, the Acropolis, that's, that's not just a great place to get a euro like in Lafayette, but it means the highest or the upper part of the city or a citadel. Pergamon actually means citadel. So on this conical-shaped hill are several temples. And I wish, I wish we had time to talk about each of them this morning, but let me just briefly touch on some of them. There, there of course, was a temple to Athena. Athena was a patron goddess of Pergamon. Dionysius was a patron deity of the arts. And, of course, that temple was located near that theater that you can see right in the middle of that animation. Demeter, the goddess of agriculture, was popular. Asclepius the Savior. Asclepius the Savior. This was the god of healing in fact, Pergamon was a, was a center of healing. Essentially, Pergamon was the Mayo Clinic of its day. Now, Asclepius is depicted by the image of a snake wrapped around a staff. 
You ever see that before? I mean, that image is still used today in the medical profession. But perhaps the most famous is what's actually called the Pergamon altar, which was an altar to Zeus. And believe it or not, this thing still exists. It's in a museum in Berlin, of all places. And I wish I could talk more about this, but, but I encourage you to Google this thing and see how it got there. It's a fascinating story. But lastly, as Stacy mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, Pergamon was one of the three cities mentioned in Revelation that had an imperial temple, imperial cult temple to worship the Roman emperor that was deemed divine. In this case, it was the emperor Trajan. And I mentioned this last because the imperial cult or worship of Caesar soon becomes the biggest challenge to the first century Christian. Okay, so that's a real quick flyover, a brief overview. But suffice to say, I mean, the citizens of Pergamon, they had a God for everything. But because of all this polytheism and the presence of the imperial cult and the social and the economic pressures that this would have put on the followers of Jesus, they were continually confronted with the challenge of compromising. Now, we face that same challenge of compromise today. However, Jesus says in his letter that there's good news for those who overcome, for those who are victorious. Now, the past few weeks, we've been using Michael Gorman's uh, construction from reading Revelation responsibly of the five elements or five C's of each of the, the seven pastoral prophetic letters, messages to the, or messages, I should say, to the churches in, in, in Revelation. These are Christ's description, the commendation, the condemnation, the challenge for the church, and lastly, the conqueror's promise. We're going to do that again. Let's start with Christ's description of himself to John in verse 12. Christ says to the angel of the church of Pergamon, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So I hope you recall back in chapter 1, when John heard the voice, he turned around and in his description of Jesus, he said, coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. Now, this would have had great significance to the reader and the hearers in Pergamon. They lived in a world where Caesar would grant a judicial power to the governors called Usgladi. Usgladi, which means the right of the sword. And this was the power of life and death. Or better said, this was the power to invoke capital punishment. The Roman governor would literally, literally carry around a medium-sized double-edged sword called a Xiphos sword as a symbol of that authority. So in Christ, identifying himself as, as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, he's claiming his power over life and death. So the proconsul in, in Pergamon, for example, they may have had power to condemn Antipas to death, but Christ has superior authority, and he promises to vindicate the faithful through resurrection. Jesus continues in the text, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus identifies Pergamon as the place where Satan lives and Satan has his throne. So there is a variety of scholarly opinion about the location of Satan's throne in Pergamon. So I tell you what, you pick any of those pagan temples or altars that I named earlier, take a deeper dive into the practices that were happening there, and you're going to determine they're, they're all really very good candidates, especially when you consider the imperial cult uh, for emperor worship. But remember, Pergamon isn't the only city with an imperial cult. Now, another argument is that it's Satan's throne because Antipas was killed there. I think there's validity to that. Remember, Antipas is the first 
of many martyrs in the church. And I think, I think these are all good reasons that Satan has certainly established his influence in many places. But given the death of Antipas, the church of Pergamon was certainly the epicenter of Satan's influence. Jesus continues with a commendation. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Okay, so I said earlier, we don't know who Antipas was. We don't know what the events were that led up to the death of Antipas or, or even how he was martyred. Although There is some historical speculation on that. But Jesus commends the church for not letting this shake their commitment to him. Now, whether or not the individuals in the church were placed under pressure to renounce their faith or not, we, we don't know, but they didn't do it. Jesus said they remained true. However, Jesus has a condemnation for the church in Pergamon. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate the food, sacrificed the idols, and they committed sexual immorality. All right, so we find the story of Balaam in the Old Testament in Numbers chapters 22 through 25 and also chapter 31. Balaam was a seer or a prophet who was hired by the Moabite king Balak to curse Moses and the Israelites as they were, as they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, Balaam is a prophet in the sense that he was unable to do this. Even though he made three attempts to curse him, he couldn't do it. But Balaam is really an example of a prophet of compromise because even though he's unable to curse Israelites, he still got God's people to into trouble by having the Moabite women seduce the Israelite men into sexual, and I would even say spiritual, immorality. So Jesus here references the teaching of Balaam because Balaam got Israel to compromise with culture. So in the case of Pergamon, as it was a few weeks ago, the compromise was eating food, sacrificed to idols, at all these pagan feasts that would be happening. This meant you were participating in the idolatrous facets of culture where they were worshiping or partaking in the worship of their gods and their goddesses of that culture. In the same way, Jesus says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, so Stacy handled the Nicolaitans a couple weeks ago, sharing that there were likely followers of someone named Nicholas. And as it was back in the city of Ephesus, this was also in part about eating food sacrificed to idols. I think, it, I think it's likely broader than that. But the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans are both examples of compromise. There's also a Gnostic bent to the Nicolaitans. They felt they had superior knowledge. They felt they had a special word from God that it was okay to participate in these rituals. In essence, they were saying something like this. God knows how hard it is to live in this culture of this day. So, so it's okay. It's okay to go along with culture to make it a little bit easier on yourself. After all, we, we know an idol isn't anything. So don't make it hard for yourself. Jesus gives a simple challenge by urging the church to repent. And he continues with the consequences in verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus, the one with the double-edged sword, the one who truly has the power of usglati, 
the right of the sword, the power of life and death. Now notice he doesn't say, well, I'm going to bring the sword to those who need to repent. But rather he says, I will lead with the sword of my mouth, my very word. So the Greek word for repent here means not only to change one's mind, but to change one's mind in a way that changes one's behavior. And as he does with all the churches, Jesus concludes his challenge with this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says to the churches, churches is the conqueror's promise. The good news of the passage. And it comes to us in two parts. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to the one who receives it. Everybody got that? Are we good? Yeah, all right, we got to do a little work here. Uh, manna, let's talk about manna. Manna, food from heaven that sustained the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. I, I think it has a two-part meaning here. It stands for God's provision to sustain the church of Pergamon in its current struggles. But it also has a future hope of the blessings and the glories to come in the kingdom that will be consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we will see, of course, later in Revelation. Now, regarding the white stone, commentator G.K. Beale states, white stone was commonly associated with a vote of acquittal or a favorable vote. White stone was also used as a pass of admission into a special occasion. So it's like your, your ticket in, so to speak. So the, the white stone here represents the reversal of the guilty verdict issued by the institutions of Pergamon against the overcoming believers who refuse to participate in these idolatrous meals. And the stone also subsequently becomes an invitation to take part in Jesus' supper. Now, a lot of scholarly ink has been spilled determining whose name is written on this stone. Well, I'm not going to share all that with you, but I'm going to share what makes the most sense to me. So let's jump to the end of Revelation where John writes in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4 of the saints. John says, No longer will, will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. Again, Beale states, Believers receive Christ's name to indicate their identity with him. Therefore, to receive a new name is to receive Jesus' victorious, kingly name. No one knows except himself. What does it mean to know the name? BLS. Knowing isn't just about mere cognitive knowledge, but the experiential access to the character and the power that this name represents. All right. So I've been leading um, <clears throat> a group of guys who meet on Wednesday evenings for a one-hour Bible study. So yes, this is a shameless plug. We would, we would love to see more guys join us for one hour here on Wednesday nights at 6.30 as we study God's Word. Uh, for more than a year now, we've met and we study the text that's actually going to be preached the, the coming Sunday. So for example, last Wednesday we met and we, we studied this text. And we use an inductive study method uh, that I learned from one of my seminary professors um, that involves four questions. And without fail, those four questions are adequate to fill our hour of time and study. And the last of those four questions is a three-part question. It's about application. We ask, what does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about the church? And what does this passage teach us about Christian life today? So as usual, 
me and my guys, we, we tackled these questions this past Wednesday, but I thought we would also use this final three-part question today as we look at what this letter to the Church of Pergamon says to us. Now remember, Pastor Stacy has told us many times this letter was not written to us, but it was written for us. So first, what does this passage teach us about God? And when we answer this, we need to keep in mind God in three persons, triune God, the Trinity. There are a number of things, but let me focus on what stands out to me. Now, the overarching theme of this passage is about faithfulness or trust versus compromise. And it's clear that Jesus is saying to the church, and he's saying to us that he doesn't tolerate compromise. It's, it's not okay. Holding to the teaching of Balaam and holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it's about making little compromises. Not big compromises. Remember, Jesus commends them for remaining true in the face of the death of Antipas. But this is about the smaller stuff. The smaller stuff that makes life easier in a challenging culture. So, this is going along to get along. And Christ's response to this is to repent. Scripture tells us time and again that our God is a jealous God. You know, the first and second commandments. You shall have no God before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I could spend all morning quoting more scripture to the same. Our God, our creator, he expects, he commands our worship of him alone. And he doesn't tolerate compromise for any reason. So that's one thing this passage tells us about God, and there are several more things, but I think that sets up the next two parts of this question. What does this text teach us about the church? And the thing that stands out to me about the church, but is also still true about Jesus, is that Jesus knows his church, and he wants to meet the church's needs. I think this is true for all seven churches in Revelation. Jesus knew their context, and he states here at Pergamon, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your, your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Likewise, Jesus knows us. He knows ECC Lafayette. He knows where we live. He knows our unique circumstances. He knows what our challenges are. And while we don't have anyone like in our church like Antipas who's been put to death, we do have faithful witnesses Martyrs, that's what martyrs mean, a faithful witness. And, and we, he knows, and he sees, and he's pleased. Likewise, he knows if, if we, like some in per Pergamon, may have compromised as a church. If, if we, like the church in Pergamon, have, have drifted into compromise, he knows and he wants us to repent and overcome. Even if that means economic challenges, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more here in a second. But he wants to meet our needs in the face of the challenge. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, God's provision. And I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Just, just as God provided for the collective group of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, he wants to provide for his church, Big C Church, which means his churches, which means ECC. So lastly, what does this passage teach us about Christian life today? And I think... Our own personal application can best be summarized with the statement, trust over compromise. Well, I said earlier that the, 
the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans was to go along to get along. Um, these compromises were about economics. This is about trust and provision. Com compromise a little to make it easier to put food on the table. To keep you, to keep your business, to keep your family in the good grace of culture. As, as Stacy shared last week, to go along with what the trade guild that you're likely a part of expects from you. So the Nicolaitans say, you know, go ahead, go ahead and attend that festival so you, so you don't destroy all the networks you work so hard to build up. Just keep your head down, don't make any waves. After all, you're in the Roman Empire, and when in Rome, it's not best to draw unnecessary attention to yourself, especially negative attention. It's okay. Jesus understands how hard it is. Pastor Brad Gray, who I'm going to tell you a little bit about more in a minute, responds to this teaching this way. You can find comfort in this life if you compromise. But you can find greater reward if you don't compromise. You can find comfort in this life if you compromise. You can find greater reward if you don't compromise. So do you see how this all ties in with this idea of hidden manna? So question, just to ponder this morning. Have you come to a place in your walk with Jesus where your refusal to compromise what you feel that God's word is holding you to has actually hurt you? Maybe hurt you economically? Maybe hurt you relationally? Maybe hurt your business or your livelihood? Maybe it's hurt your career path? I want to end with some more thoughts from Pastor Brad Gray, who I mentioned. I, he, I consider him, he's an expert in this letter to the Church of Pergamon. He's also someone who's led several trips to the ruins of Pergamon. When we read these two examples of compromise that this text gives, Gray states that the name Balaam in Hebrew means devourer of the people. And the term Nicolaitan is likely derived from the word Nike, like the shoes, who was the Greek god of victory, who was called the conqueror of the people. We saw, saw that last week. What devours and what conquers people both in the first century in Pergamon's context and us today? Compromise. In Gray states we compromise for one of two reasons. And the first reason is we do it because we don't think it's a big deal to Jesus. And it seems like pastorally we hear this more and more. Um, you know, I, 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 love, I like Jesus, but I like this thing too. And how could he not want me to have that? Or, I know the Bible says something about this, but doesn't he want me to be happy? And Jesus is calling out that type of thinking in the letter. Jesus says time and time again in the Gospels that his way is not the ways of the world. You, you can't read the message of Jesus and not see it as countercultural. Now, the second way we compromise is even easier to fall prey to, and that is we compromise because we don't know what we're doing is wrong. So Gray, and frankly, many others have said that the greatest threat to the American church today is biblical illiteracy. Because without the truth, we will outsource the truth to culture. Gray adds, this is hard, because the arguments from culture can be well-crafted, beautifully constructed and impressive. And if we don't have the ability to hold them up to God's word, the temptation is to think, well, how can God not be for this thing? And frankly, in our divided culture, the cultural arguments, they hit us from all sides. So the second compromise is even more dangerous 
when we don't actually know what the Word of God says. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? Anyone? Right, so, right, so I might not sin against you. Jesus identifies himself in the passage as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, his word. And he later says of the church in Pergamon, if they don't repent, he will come and fight against those who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans with the sword of his mouth. What's in his mouth? His very word. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to penetrates the dividing the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and it, and it judges between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I think it's important to remember that this letter, and frankly all the epistles that Paul and Peter wrote, were likely circulated and read by these churches in Asia Minor. So I think it's likely these churches were also familiar with Paul's words to the Ephesians to put on the full armor of God, including the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, if God's Word is the standard, what are we doing to hide God's Word in our hearts so that we might not sin against God? Either out of ignorance that leads us to be swayed by a cultural argument, or our own willfulness to not repent because we've yet to be transformed by the Word. So, in other words, if you're here this morning and you're not frequently engaging in Scripture, if it isn't forming and shaping your life outside of what we do here on Sunday morning in worship each week, you're likely on a collision course, at, at least with the temptation, to compromise. And it's that easy when you live where Satan has his throne. Now you're probably thinking, wow, Kurt, this is all a bit intense. Yeah, it is intense. Jesus is bringing quite a bit of intensity here to in his letter to the churches. But he's doing so because he loves them. And he loves us. And, and there's always good news. There's good news. The good news is that God's word is more available to us today than perhaps at any other time and place in history. And we are very intentional here at ECC to provide ways for you to hide God's word in your heart, to be equipped with the sword of the spirit, the very word of God. And I've put some of these on the slide this morning. But you can find all this at, at that website, ecclife.net forward slash scripture. It's a well put together website of, of ways for you to engage in scripture. And I said that there's good news for those who overcome. God's promise to us is if we remain true, if we overcome, if we are victorious, he will supply our needs both now and through the hidden manna and ultimately through a white stone and a name unknowable except by those who are worthy to come sit at the table with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is good news. This is, this is the best news. This is our hope. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? So God, we, we know that we were created to be in a relationship with you. And that you are a jealous God who pursues us with your love and your desire to be in that relationship with us, God. And we also know you're a God who will provide for us, who will provide for our needs, especially when things are difficult. So God, I pray that each of us would have the desire to know your word and to have our lives shaped and transformed by your word so that we can hold it up to the culture that surrounds us and continually whispers in our ear 
teaching us to compromise. God, may we be people who hide your word in our hearts so we might not sin against you, so that we can stand up under the temptation to compromise. And Lord, we are thankful for your double-edged sword of your living word. Amen.